Welcome to the Dan Norton Show. Today I am here with Timothy Seiler to discuss the issue of abortion. And I'm not sure if we will strictly adhere to that to the, for the entire time. Maybe we will, maybe we're not, I'm not sure, we'll see. Um, but any, anyways, um, Timothy, why don't you give us a little intro about who you are and what you do? Sure, so as you said, my name is Tim Seiler. Uh, I am currently an attorney in Florida. Uh, I work with uh, a firm that's doing family and civil litigation. Um, I've been a uh, licensed attorney for uh, just about a year now. Uh, I passed the bar last February. And um, before that, I spent uh, about 13 years in the Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, well, congrats on passing the bar. So you're- Thank you. Uh, second phase of your career then from the military to the uh, lawyer, lawyering. Right. Okay. So I met you, I guess, somehow through Facebook <clears throat> and uh, I've been posting recently on Facebook various invitations for people to debate or discuss various topics. And I guess you saw one of those on abortion and you, you were interested in talking about that. So you, you have the position, I guess you're, you're opposed to abortion Correct. And uh, I, I favor uh, a woman's right to an abortion. So um, we don't have any very formal structure here about this, like opening statements or anything. But um, how about we just start with you telling us uh, why you oppose abortion? So yeah, very fundamentally and basically, I, I think that the question has to be answered with uh, what it is that we're doing whenever we uh, say uh, that we're having an abortion. So the abortion procedure, uh, I believe, is terminating a human life, and that the involuntary termination of a human life uh, is morally and ethically uh, impermissible. Okay, so it's the reason it's it's not a good thing, uh, and well, I, would you go beyond that to say it's not only morally and ethically impermissible, it's also politically and permissible and it should be outlawed? Yes. Okay. So, um, okay. So I, I disagree on all of those points, both on the political and the moral and ethical level, but we can talk about that. And so your reason for, for being against it is because it's, you think it's a human life that's being ended and it's wrong to end a human life. Uh, so, um, I guess one, one uh, thing I would come back with to that is sh should an embryo, something like an embryo count as a human life, it could certainly become a human life and it's not, that's not controversial, but is it right to call it a human when it's still in development, when it's just uh, you know, a few cells attached to the inside of a uterus um, should we call that thing a human if you're i had a discussion with someone the other day about this and i one point i was making was well how do we learn when it's right to call something a human and maybe one way to think about this is uh, the way you teach a child the concept of a human so if you want to teach a child what a human is you might point to things like you and i like we are right now, but if you then, if you then pointed to, say, a pregnant woman's belly, 
and then said, that's a human, I think you might confuse the child. Um, what, what's going on here? Didn't we already count her? Why are you talking about, why are you pointing at her belly? There's a human there? What's, so I think it's at least not obvious, especially if it's not, you know, she's not even, you know, eight months pregnant and you can't even see, she just looks normal there. But, you know, we know that there are some cells attached inside her uterus because she's had a pregnancy test. Um, I think it's at least not obvious that it's, that it's correct to call that thing at that stage a human, as opposed to maybe a human in development or a potential human. And if it's merely a potential human or a human in development, then is it clear that something like that has rights in the way that you know, fully developed humans like you and I have rights? Let me just pause there and see what you have to say about that. Sure. So I do agree that it's not obvious. Um, I don't know that I agree much past that now because a lot of things are not obvious. You know, you know whenever we look out uh, around us, uh, you talk to a flat earther and they say, well, it's not obvious that the earth is round and you must prove that to me. Well, we can prove that. And uh, you can't prove it easily through visual observation. Uh, it takes more study and expertise and understanding, but just because something is not clearly obvious doesn't make it less true. Um, and so whenever we start talking about uh, where a human life begins and how it develops and at what point it needs to be respected, uh, I remember there, there was a few years ago an ethics article that was released in the Journal of Medical Ethics that argued for uh, something they called afterbirth abortion. And they said that every uh, reasonable argument made for abortion uh, prior to the child being taken out of the womb uh, applied it just as equally to uh, a child that was no longer in the womb. And I'm not sure if they meant that seriously or, uh, or if they were trying to draw a, a point to the hypocrisy of the abortion argument. But either way, it is very valid if you look at it that way, because a newborn infant uh, is completely and totally incapable of taking care of itself in any way, shape, or form. It has no mental acuity. It, it doesn't understand anything that's going on around it. It uh, barely has any visual capability. It can't uh, move. It can't feed itself. It can't make any decisions for itself. Uh, really, all it does is cries and eats and defecates. And so if we make this argument that uh, the fetus has not been developed yet, and uh, is not a fully-fledged human like ourselves and therefore should have lower levels of rights uh, or moral uh, objectivity, then uh, I think that could be applied very easily to that newborn infant and has been applied throughout history in similar cases to those with lower mental acuity, to those of different races, and then you get into the arguments, uh, I mean, I hate to go to really crazy extremes, but uh, in Nazi Germany, I mean, they killed hundreds of thousands of mentally uh, incapable uh, people on the idea that they were not uh, of the same moral and ethical value as other uh, human life. Okay. So you, you raised uh, a few points there, and uh, I don't know if we'll go through all of them, but so one point was the obviousness issue. Uh, just because something isn't obvious doesn't mean it's not true, which I think is correct. Um, so 
maybe uh, I'll, I'll say some things about that. So you think it's, it's not obvious that a embryo, say, is a human being, but nevertheless, you do think it's a human being. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. Uh, it has human DNA, but just setting aside this point for the, for the moment of whether it's, it's right to call it a human being in the final analysis, even if it's not obvious to begin with, um, it seems like a lot of anti-abortionists have this kind of vitriol and uh, hostility. I, I found in discussing this with with them on in comment sections, like on YouTube videos, they are extremely hostile and call you all kinds of names and think they call you a murderer. That's one of their favorite things to do. Is and they won't even engage in discussion with you because they think it's it's such a heinous thing, but. And it seems like that sort of response would be appropriate if it were obvious, this issue. If it were obviously a human being and obviously murder, which I guess uh, some argue or at least try to say, maybe if you have to argue it, it's not obvious enough. Uh, um, but anyways, I'm curious about your view of the kind of vitriol that anti-abortionists have. And, you know, some will go to the links of bombing abortion clinics, you know, that's a, a fringe of them, but some of them uh, will go to such links. And, uh, but I don't know if you have that kind of vitriol. I mean, I don't sense it from you right now, but if you, and maybe that's because you don't think it's obvious, whereas others do. So I'm, I'm interested to just hear you speak to that issue a bit. Okay. So, I think that is uh, problematic, and I think that's problematic uh, not just of the abortion argument, but of uh, really civil discourse in general in our society today. And I know I have, uh, maybe not today, but uh, I have fallen into this pit before. Uh, it's very easy to get your emotions riled up, to uh, be in a position where you realize that the uh, other person, I, I hate to say like opposing side, because it doesn't necessarily always have to be about opposition and debate, uh, to have a conversation and exchange ideas should be uh, mutually friendly in most situations. But uh, we, we get into this uh, idea that if the other person is thinking differently than us, that they are our opponent, that everything that they say is a personal attack against us. And I, I think that uh, some level of it, it's that's just that general kind of negative uh, inability in modern society to just talk to each other. But I think whenever you start dealing with something as sensitive as abortion, it is more difficult to avoid that kind of response because where it isn't obvious at first, once you reach the position, uh, as many people say, that abortion is murder, well, then what you're talking about is, I believe this is murder, and you believe that you should be justified in doing the murder. And when you don't back the argument to the original principles that you're actually talking about, and you're stuck in that uh, third level argument uh, where you've already made these assumptions, and you're both working from very different sets of assumptions, you're not even talking about the same thing anymore. The, the person that's opposed to abortion is thinking abortion is murder and you're wrong, period. It, it's disgusting, it's horrible, but you're not talking about murder. You're talking about 
I don't believe this is actually human life. And I believe that there's certain other things that should be going into this conversation. And so you're not even really trying to meet each other and have a dialogue. So it, it, it seems like your perspective is pretty different than a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people, I couldn't even get onto a call like this. They'll just, you know, they'll, they'll try to, they'll just make some nasty remarks about you on YouTube, for instance, if I post right. a comment saying, hey, anyone who want to have a debate on abortion, I favor a woman's right to abortion, I'll just get instant venom. Um, no one is nearly as calm as you seem, or a few people, I would say, on the other side that I found are willing to calmly discuss this issue. So uh, you might be an outlier, but I guess, I, uh, now, now I'm curious about like, if you think this, do you think it's murder? Would you say that? Well, so that's an interesting question because, uh, so I'm a lawyer and so what is murder? Murder is a, a legal conclusion. Uh, we're saying that it's the unjustified of a human being with malice aforethought. Um, but to say that that is uh, murder, we're uh, making several levels of assumption. We're assuming that it is the uh, killing of another human being. We're assuming that it's unjustified. We're uh, assuming that you had malice aforethought, so you understood that it was a human being whenever you chose to do this uh, act. And so I myself have uh, very frequently uh, in uh, conversations thrown out this phrase that abortion is murder. But I, I don't know that it is necessarily um, appropriate to use that uh, argument because... You mean, wait, just one second. You mean you've thrown it out and not in the sense that you've not used it, but in the sense that you've interjected it into the conversation? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, I'm admitting my own uh, okay. um, failings in previous conversations because... Uh, I think it's very easy to make these kind of statements and then have somebody say, aha, no, you, you've done this before. And oh, well, no, I think everybody uh, has had moments where they, they are not necessarily civil in conversation. They don't use their best arguments. And so I'm acknowledging that, yeah, I don't believe that that's necessarily the best way of characterizing this. And I also think that that's the, the more I've had these conversations with people, because I've had this particular conversation a lot. Um, I think it shuts down debate. And so it's very counterproductive to use that language because where you and other people that uh, believe in that will automatically understand and rally behind the idea abortion is murder. Um, people like yourself uh, that don't agree with that, hear that and say, okay, this person is completely and totally incapable of having a rational conversation on the subject. And so I think that uh, it's better to dial that back again to those fundamental principles that you're really dealing with. And so I'd say, I do believe that it is a human life. I do believe that it's unjustified. And I do believe that it should be um, outlawed, but it's not currently. And that um, it probably should be. Okay. I, I, uh, I still want to press on this issue of whether try to call it murder there, because I think uh, maybe at the end of the day for your argument to work, the reason you would need in order to justify outlawing it is because it is in fact murder. And as to the issue of, um, and if it's not murder, if it's justified killing, like killing in self-defense, then I don't see the, 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 
there's reason to outlaw it. Um, so, I mean, maybe there are issues of like manslaughter where it's not, uh, well, that's not really justified killing if you, if you kill someone on accident, so. Well, so it's different levels of justification. And uh, so the, you do get into that. Uh, what were the levels of intent? Uh, and so whenever you're talking about it from a legal argument, that, that's typically why you break down something from murder one to murder two or three, depending on the jurisdiction. Uh, the, the terms can be different, but uh, you have that, I did this intentional, uh, intentionally with forethought and planning, or I did this intentionally, but in the heat of the moment, or I did this uh, with negligence, uh, but not gross negligence. And uh, those uh, levels of uh, breaking that down do have significant difference because uh, when you're talking about the uh, legal distinction, and we are talking there about making this illegal, you're talking about making it a crime, then you've got to get into the mens rea, the, the guilty mind. And so I, I think one of the tricks of this conversation is a lot of young women that get into the position where they go out to have an abortion do so because they've been told for years growing up through health class, through their uh, parents, through society, that this is okay. And they do it uh, because they don't really fully understand what they're doing and they don't question it. And then later on, when you try and have this conversation that we're having now, they're completely and totally opposed to uh, believing that what they did was actually ending a human life because if they accept that argument from you now, they have to at the same time accept that they had previously themselves ended a human life. And while they may have ended a human life, I don't know that, that would be murder because as they're convinced by society to do this and being told that it's right and allowed, they're not going into it with the thought I'm going to go kill my child because uh, it's just easier for me. They're, they're not thinking that way. And so I think the ones that um, you would really target with those kind of laws, and I think are often targeted with those kind of laws, is you criminalize the abortion practitioner. Say, you're not allowed to uh, publicize this kind of procedure. You're not allowed to engage in this kind of procedure. And uh, because those are the people with the medical knowledge that should understand what they're doing and they are doing it with conscious malice aforethought. Uh, they're offering their services specifically to make money when they have all of the medical knowledge to back up that this child who's often 20 weeks old may actually be viable outside of the womb now or within a couple of weeks. Okay, so, so you're calling it a child. I think that's another contentious term and uh, I, I'm, I wouldn't, I mean, you can talk in a loose sense. You could say my child is, you know, eight months pregnant, but uh, if you're using the word in a more strict sense, I don't think it's right to call it a child or a baby. Although I know many anti-abortionists do use that language, but I, I think that might be uh, just, you know, show, revealing their, their premises or maybe their biases. Um, I don't think that's, non-controversial language to use, at least in the context of a debate like this. If, if you're talking to your, your uh, you know, fellow anti-abortionist, sure, but I'm not going to accept terminology like that, just as I wouldn't accept without an argument that it's right to call an embryo a human. Okay. Um, so, and maybe we can discuss this issue some more, <clears throat> but um, 
see there's some other things that came up um just back on the issue of civility if i thought that someone was actually endorsing murder i would be hesitant to have a conversation <clears throat> excuse me have i would be hesitant to have a conversation at all with someone who endorses murder because uh i may, maybe that's because i think of murder as being obviously wrong something obviously wrong and maybe that's because of my understanding of what murder is or the definition of murder so <clears throat> um if you really think it's murder then <laughs> i can see why many many anti-abortionists would just get all vitriolic and not even stoop to the level um deign to have a discussion with someone who is willing to endorse such a position that's just beyond the pale um you shouldn't give it the respect of even you know giving it a hearing and right. i can sympathize with that if you really think if it's right that it's murder but you know i just i don't agree that it's murder um even in the final analysis so it seems like you're you're in this position at least right now um i don't know about uh in the past but where you you think it's you well we were talking about different kinds of murder first degree second degree third degree but is it correct that right now you think it's some kind of murder i think again it so it depends on uh who we're talking about when you're talking about the practitioner the the person that's actually performing this procedure i do believe that that is murder because i i do believe that they have uh by their own certification as a medical uh, practitioner they've proven that they have the the medical knowledge uh at, that they should at least know that this is a human life uh they've been exposed to all of that uh and they've chosen to do that anyway uh the individual woman that goes in to have that procedure i think it's much more difficult there are probably some that are fully aware of what they're doing and choose to do it anyway but um an improper basis in fact is often a defense and so when you do something believing that uh what you're doing is different than what you are actually doing um that does prevent you from forming that criminal mindset that's necessary for a lot of convictions um so for instance i'm at a party and somebody spikes my drink and uh i'm just given some kind of lsd and i go out and i try and um uh, attack somebody because i'm having some kind of uh psychiatric reaction where I believe that person is some kind of a a monster that's going to eat me. Like hashtag not legal advice, but in a lot of jurisdictions you could bring up a defense that you did not have the uh criminal intent to actually harm another human being as you were involuntarily intoxicated and put in this position that you didn't understand what you were doing. And so in a very similar way in our society today with this debate still concurrently raging uh, with people so diametrically opposed and especially I, when i think the uh, majority of at least media culture is a, 
opposed to uh, anything that uh, limits abortion rights. Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that the individual woman who makes that decision is fully uh, committed to doing a wrong act. And so I don't think that they're doing something that amounts to murder. Not because the act itself isn't wrong, but because they don't understand what they're doing. Okay. So one thing I'm wondering about now is, is it subjective? Like it's murder for some people, but not for others. It depends on the state of mind. So maybe it's, um, I mean, that's, that's an interesting position. Uh, I, I wonder if it ultimately holds up. Like, is there, is there, it just take the normal case of uncontroversial case of murder. I walk up to someone on the street and I pull out a gun and I shoot them. Okay. In that case, it's, there's no issue of, you know, for some people that was murder for others. It wasn't actually, maybe it is an issue because, uh, like if you're, I don't know if, if you're a Marxist or something and you think the, um, the billionaires of the world are evil and they stole their, their wealth from the, the workers. And now you're going to start a communist revolution and, you know, take away from the haves and give it all to the have not. So you're, you're legally, you're perfectly justified in going up to random rich people and, and killing them. That's not murder. That murder would be, unjustified um, killing of a human being and done so intentionally. Um, so, I mean, if you're, I guess if your overall worldview or philosophy is, is Marxist or communist, that might make you think you have license to do something that if you're not a Marxist, if you're an individualist uh, or you know, an objectivist, um, you would call it murder. So I wonder if, if something like that is going on here. We haven't mentioned religion much, but I, I, I think that that might actually be um, a similar thing going on there. They, people have a certain worldview, which leads them to think it's murder. They think God has implanted this soul in the, in the womb and it's a special creation of God. And if you interfere with that, you're interfering with God's plan. And because they have all this um, religious uh, background to their beliefs, they now think it's right to call it murder. Just as a Marxist might think it's uh, wrong to call it murder if he goes up to a billionaire and kills him and takes his money, he's just getting what's his. Um, so I'm curious what you think of that and if you are religious and whether your being religious plays any role in your opposition to abortion, or do you have a entirely non-religious secular reasons for opposing abortion? So I think it's a few things to uh, unpack there. Uh, one, you, you kind of, uh, so whenever I uh, talk about um, perspective, you, know, you, you seem to, um, step back and uh, you didn't, didn't seem to like that. Uh, and I, I want to make sure that I'm not presenting an argument of moral subjectivity. Uh, I, I do believe in moral objectivity. I, I think that uh, something is either right or wrong, uh, period. It, it, there, yeah, whether we come to the correct conclusion over that is um, 
questionable. I mean, people can be wrong and people can believe that something is right whenever they are wrong in that belief, but it either is or isn't right. Um, just like math is either right or wrong. Uh, it, so I don't think that that's, um, I, I want to stay away from that argument is what I'm saying. Uh, what I do believe in is uh, a relativistic argument uh, that, uh, as Einstein would say, you, your frame of reference can very drastically change what is being uh, done around you. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, what's being done changes based on your perspective, but that your perspective has to be uh, taken into account to understand uh, everything. Um, as far as your question on religion, uh, I don't think that religion has to play into it. I, I think a lot of people do argue from religion, and that's one of those other things that I've found uh, definitely does skew the argument and make people shut off immediately. Uh, I've always held the perspective, I am religious, uh, I'll, I'll throw that out there, but at the same time, that is not the reason why I particularly oppose uh, abortion. I think that any argument that can be made from religion can be made just as effectively from a secular viewpoint, and if it can't, then it must be a tenant that uh, should only be followed by yourself. So, for instance, if you believe is a matter of your religion that homosexuality is incorrect, well, then that's great. Don't go out and do anything that's homosexual, and you're fine. You've not broken any tenets of your religion. At the same time, if somebody else is going out and doing something homosexual, uh, they're not bothering you in any way, shape, or form, and you have no right to say anything about what they're doing in their lifestyle. And so all I wish is that that person is happy. You know, uh, the difference here is that I think you can argue from a secular viewpoint, 100% uh, without ever bringing religion into it, that abortion is still uh, objectively wrong. And um, I think to really justify abortion, you have to be able to explain why a child that has just been born and is screaming on the operating table, uh, you know, you haven't even cut the umbilical cord yet, that child is a human being that's worthy of uh, all of the rights of being a human being, but five minutes prior to that, while it was still inside of the mother's womb, that child is not a human being. Uh, what transition there, what changed? Why does that uh, fetus suddenly gain human rights. Okay, so you're bringing up the, the what we, we might call the line, line drawing issue. Isn't it just arbitrary to put the line here at birth rather than five minutes before? And I think that issue might be a red herring. Um, like, you know, do I have a beard right now? Well, I haven't shaven in a few days. Should we call this a beard? Um, you know, there's, it's clear when I have a, you know, inch long hair on my face, I've got a beard. If I've just shaven and I've got a clean face, it's clear I don't have a beard. But where exactly do you draw the line? Well, you can have a discussion on that, but I don't think it changes the fact that in some cases people clearly have beards and in some places they clearly don't. So I think a, uh, maybe if, 
I think it's clear that a, you know, a, a blastocyst, you know, just a tiny, you know, you probably can't even see it with the naked eye, um, collection of cells isn't something that has rights, that has a right that a woman, her life should be sacrificed for the sake of that thing. You start to get a little more fuzzy once you get close to the birth because it becomes much more gray and human-like, uh, more obviously human-like if you're taking people like you and I as paradigm examples of humans. Um, I think it might be a distraction to focus on that line drawing case. And maybe it, it's reasonable for different uh, lines to be drawn. Like just as with a legal age of majority, some countries are 18 years old, some are 16, some are 21. There's no um, uh, one exact right place the line has to be drawn. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's clear that a two-year-old isn't an adult and shouldn't have all the same rights and privileges um, like the right to vote or to drive a car as someone who's 35. So I think this abortion issue often gets um, maybe bogged down is the word in discussing where exactly the line is. But, and then uh, the anti-abortionists will try to use that to reason back to the conclusion that Therefore, nowhere along that spectrum of development is it clear that the thing doesn't have rights since there's no obvious place to draw the line. There we, therefore, we can't say anything lacks rights, not even a, a tiny you know, cell clump. So let me ask you this. Do you think that it's wrong at every stage? It's, it's not just that it's, it's uh, last trimester, um, but at any point it's wrong or murder. And, there's other cases like rape, um, or do you allow for exceptions? Uh, if it's murder, you know, it's not obvious that you should allow for any exceptions. Um, so I, I've thrown out a lot. Um, so let me just uh, pause there and maybe just to end on a question, and you, but you can take this wherever you want. Do you think it's murder all the way through back to, you know, from conception onwards? Well, I don't know. Maybe you can't even answer that because you said it's like murder for the, for the physician, but not for the woman, which is, well, so, uh, sorry, it, I've it, gone on too long. Let me, let me <laughs> just give it over to you. No, it's fair. Uh, fine. Uh, it, I understand the confusion and the, the, the I think uh, the problem is that murder is a final legal conclusion. And so it, it's not useful. It's rhetorically powerful, and like I said, I've used it before, uh, especially whenever I'm dealing with somebody that I don't think uh, is actually listening to me. It's very cathartic to say, abortion is murder, shut up and go away. But it's not constructively intellectually useful, because um, you mentioned before the idea, and you went into a lot of stuff about socialism and everything else uh, with the, the Bolshevik resolution, uh, revolution and everything. But uh, it, to it, take all those layers off of there, it, it just um, walking up and shooting somebody in the middle of the street doesn't even uh, amount to a clear-cut case of murder because if I walk up and shoot somebody in the middle of the street, you might say, yeah, obviously that's murder. Well, what if I'm wearing a green uniform and they're wearing a blue uniform and we're in the middle of a war? Well, that's not murder anymore. That That's uh, a justified killing in the middle of uh, of heated uh, in international conflict, you know, uh, what if I go up and shoot him randomly in the middle of the street because uh, he's holding a gun aimed at a small child 
and he's about to kill somebody. That's no longer a murder. That's a justified killing. You know, there, there's a lot of little facts that you can throw into these situations that change them drastically. So uh, I would say that that line drawing is important. If you don't have that line drawing to be able to say when a human becomes a human from a fetus, that uh, the only logically consistent way to handle that problem is to err on the side of caution and to say that we're going to protect human life up to the point of uh, conception. Uh, however, that protection is not universal. Uh, and, and so whenever you deal with something like an ectopic pregnancy, well, the, the uh, embryo is implanted in the fallopian tubes or, or is somehow otherwise outside of the womb. And in 100% of cases, that child is going to die and the woman is very likely to uh, suffer significant medical consequences from that. It is completely justified in that kind of situation to decide that you're going to terminate the life of the child or the embryo. Uh, I know you don't like the, the child terminology. Um, it's very justified to end the uh, life of the embryo as opposed to taking the risk for the woman. And there are potentially other circumstances where that applies, but I think that uh, whenever we talk about red herrings, the real red herring is often uh, these exceptions because the exceptions are incredibly rare. Uh, the Guttmacher, G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R, they're um, probably butchering their name, but uh, they're an institution that actually favors abortion and they, they push for it very heavily. But some years ago, they did a, uh, very uh, detailed uh, investigation of why women actually have abortions. And something like three quarters of them admitted that their primary reason was economic and social issues. Uh, they uh, Almost nobody mentioned anything to do with uh, health uh, or rape or anything else. It was as they were afraid that they weren't going to be able to keep up with their job, that they already had too many children, that they weren't ready to have their first child, that they were in the middle of relationship problems and they thought it was going to hurt their uh, relationship further or that prevent them from getting out of the relationship. Um, and those may be justifiable uh, it, to the person individually if they don't believe that the fetus has any life value. But if we say that it does have life value, those kind of arguments are really terrible. Uh, and it would be about the equivalent of saying, I'm gonna go drown my toddler because he's too expensive. Well, if you use the term toddler, that's like the term child or the term baby, which, you know, I, so I don't think it's like that. Um, there's so many things we could talk about here and I'm sure we could have a 10 hour discussion if we had the time, but um, let me ask you this. Um, it, so it sounds like you think there are some exceptions, like you mentioned the fallopian tube kind of abortion where it's justified. So uh, I guess you would, or, well, let's take the rape case actually. Do you, do you allow for an exception in that case? So, I personally, if I was doing the legislation, I, I would say that uh, no, uh, it's not 
the fault of the child at that point that their father was a terrible individual. I mean, um, the fact that the woman didn't consent to uh, the procreation doesn't prevent the fact that you have the procreation that occurred. <laughs> um, I think that's very different than uh, the situation where there is a legitimate medical issue that uh, could cause significant risk to the woman uh, if she tried to take the child to term. And now, I mean, you're balancing one life against another. And I, I think that that's perfectly reasonable to leave to the doctor and patient to determine which life is more important. Um, but when you're dealing with a rape situation, I, I understand that it's tragic. I understand that uh, it, it's very painful for the woman, but if you believe that the fetus has independent value as a human life, uh, that value isn't damaged because of the bad acts of its parentage. Okay. So no, no rape uh, because it's, say it's not the fault of the uh, fetus. Um, right, just like you I wouldn't send a five-year-old to jail because its uh, parents uh, were murderers. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> I think things change drastically when we're talking about children. I just wouldn't call, you know, a fetus a child. Um, so I don't think that that sort of analogy has any force. Uh, not with me, anyways. Um, so how to make progress here. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll go back to the, um, you said you thought line drawing is important. It is, yes. And I, I think it's, um, it's not the most, I think there's something more important than line drawing, which is recognizing the difference between the things that you're drawing a line to separate. So like it's to take the, the issue of legal age for majority, it's hierarchically, to use that term, I don't know if you're familiar with that term from the way Ayn Rand uses it, but there's a certain order, a hierarchy in which uh, things have to be learned, like you have to learn arithmetic before algebra, before calculus. Um, well, I think we need to learn the difference between a child and an adult before we can settle the issue of where exactly to draw the line for legal purposes. And I don't think there's you know, like one metaphysically given place you have to draw the line. And as I said, you know, different countries draw it in different places, but uh, wherever you draw the line, first you have to establish there's a difference between children and adults. And then there's a question of where for legal purposes are we gonna draw that line? Likewise, <clears throat> I think in, in the case of abortion, we have to recognize the difference between um, a baby out of the womb and then a little cell clump. And then we can discuss, you know, where exactly should we draw the line in calling this thing a baby? I guess maybe, I, I don't know if you draw, you even, so maybe you would, you would call the cell clump a, already you would call that a baby, uh, or you can dispute that. Maybe you wouldn't, I don't know. But I mean, would you then call uh, an acorn a tree because you know the, the acorn can develop into a tree 
Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Aristotle and the idea that the uh, purpose of the acorn is to become an oak, uh, and that uh, therefore you, you know you should uh, consider the acorn in its ultimate purpose and uh, its final ends uh, as uh, becoming the oak tree. <laughs> but is it an oak tree at the time that it's an acorn? Uh, so I. Uh, it's not clear exactly what you're asking by that, because uh, if, if you're saying, is it you know, 20 feet tall and does it have leaves? Obviously not. But uh, if you're saying, is it of the same biological significance? Um, potentially, is it of the same usefulness to a human being? No, obviously uh, it takes uh, potential, uh, potentially years of gestational period before uh, we could cut it down for wood or uh, do anything else with it that would be uh, useful. But those are very different questions that could all be uh, taken from the same question that you just asked. Okay, so, I mean, if, I, I don't, I, I think it would be maybe uh, strange to you know, have a an acorn in my palm here, and then say, "I've got a tree in my hand." I mean, you can kind of make sense of that if you've got some knowledge of biology, but it would be a kind of weird thing to to say. Um, but it seems like the anti-abortionists they want to just easily use these terms like baby and child to apply even to a cell clump and not think that it's, there's anything weird, or at least they don't let on that there's anything weird about using the term baby or child to refer to these things. I mean- So I don't think there is necessarily anything weird. So let me circle back and try and give a, a little bit more of an honest uh, attempt at answering your question, because I think I understand what you're getting at. The acorn, as far as I'm concerned, is a tree as far as the level of legal rights and significance that we give it in our society. Uh, and in society, uh, an acorn and a tree are indistinguishable. Uh, they're items to be owned by an individual and you are free to do with your acorn as much as you are free to do with your tree. Um, but uh, that same kind of significance is drawn, uh, say like sea turtle regulation. We are not free to go out uh, to the beach side and dig up a sea turtle nest. And we do give significance to the eggs that are buried there in the same way that we would if somebody went out and mutilated a sea turtle, we would treat them in the exact same way for damaging an endangered species, for damaging the egg or for damaging the turtle because we recognize the potentiality of the egg to become a turtle and to increase and maintain their population. Okay, so, uh, so you're bringing in, or may, maybe I'm not sure, the issue of animal rights. Like, I, I don't think animals have rights. That's another whole discussion. I don't think, uh, uh, you know, a turtle has more rights than a turtle egg because I don't think the turtle has any rights to begin with. Um, so he can't have more rights. Now, I think there's something more uh, despicable about doing just like wanton cruelty 
to a, a developed uh, organism like a like a turtle or a dog, as compared to you know, like killing a dog embryo or something, giving a dog an abortion or crushing a turtle egg, where you know the thing might not even feel pain. I, I think you could reasonably say it's much more of a disgusting thing to do to hurt a developed animal. I don't think in either case it has rights, but anyways. Um, I'm not sure I mean, I think that's an interesting question because you say uh, you, it would be more despicable to damage the um, fully developed animal. Uh, why in either case with a human or an animal, because uh, I, I tend to agree with you that animals shouldn't be given rights. I'm very wary of that. I, I just use that as a, an example because it, when we're dealing with uh, this kind of thing, there's not too many good corollaries uh, to try and draw examples from. But uh, why would it be that a uh, animal at a lower developmental stage is uh, treated differently? Why would it be less cruel to crush an egg than it would be to crush a grown turtle? Well, for one, the... Sorry, I've got some dogs barking around. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, I can, but it's okay. Uh, hopefully you can still hear me okay. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, a, a dog experience, a, a grown dog, I don't know if you asked about dogs or turtles now. I'm confused. Um, anyways, uh, either one's fine. It's the same idea. Let, let's go with dogs, a little more familiar. Um, a dog is capable of feeling pain and uh, I think causing something needless pain is a cruel thing to do. I mean, I'm I'm a, I like I think I'm a benevolent person. I don't I don't derive uh, satisfaction from seeing something else in misery, if it hasn't done me any harm. Um, so, and, and, you know, it causes me some emotional distress if I see something, you know, a fellow living creature, that's um, suffering needlessly. Um, that bothers me. We can talk more about why that is, but. If something is totally alien from me or more alien from me than like a, a grown dog is if it's just like if it's a rock and it gets scratched or something or if it's an egg and it gets squashed um, i feel i guess i feel a little closer to the egg because it's at least it's alive versus a rock um but it, it's still very very much unlike me um more so than a developed dog is so i feel less sympathy so then but the problem with that kind of reasoning in my mind is that if uh, you apply that universally, uh, <laughs> if you take somebody that's a quadriplegic uh, who cannot feel pain, who cannot use their body, um, and because uh, so their, their nerve endings are completely dead, um, it, with that kind of reasoning, it would be perfectly ethical for me to go and chop off their arm because it's completely useless. They uh, can't feel anything anyway. And so my pleasure at chopping off their arm, as long as I didn't cause them to bleed out, would be perfectly fine. Uh, I, I would not put a paraplegic nearly in the same category as an invisible, invisible cell clump. I think those are radically, de deserve radically different emotional responses from, from a human being. I mean, where does the where does this it to pain? That person can't feel pain. If we're pegging it to usefulness. That person can't use their arm. So oh, what I is might the have, harm of doing that? I might have misheard uh, some of you. So you said 
you said this person is a, they can't feel pain in their arm. So what's the harm in just cutting off their right. limb? They're, they're a quadriplegic. They can't move their arm. They can't feel pain in their arm. Okay. So what would be the harm of removing their limb? I mean, it's still, it's a, it's a, it's a person and you know, it's, it's part of their body, whether they can feel it or not, it's something that's attached to them. Um, they have, they're conscious of the world. They have a life to lead, even though if it's significantly different from the kind of life many other people are going to lead, but a, a microscopic cell clump is radically different from that. And I just see those as like night and day. I mean, how can you have the same kind of affection and respect towards someone like a paraplegic and towards, you know, a, an invisible cell clump? Do you really have the same kind of emotional response and love and benevolence um, to that? It, it, that seems really strange to me that, that someone would have that kind of the same emotional response to a tiny cell clump that they can't even see as towards a developed human being who has values and is living a life. Um, which makes me think sometimes, you know, it's not really about, because it would be so strange to um, have the same emotion towards, towards both of those things that really what it's about is doing damage to actual developed human beings. And I think that would fit with the religious kind of worldview where life is about pain and suffering and sacrifice. And um, we should do things that harm ourselves. And one way of doing that is making a woman suffer through a life of misery or parents suffer through a life of misery, raising some child they don't want. It's not really for the sake of, you know, a microscopic cell clump. It's not really what they care about. It's about putting through this religious view of self-sacrifice and destroying people's lives. Now, maybe you, you said you're religious, but that's not your reason for, for um, opposing abortion. But I, I suspect that might actually be something that could explain why a lot of religious people do oppose abortion. And they might not say that because it, it, it sounds too bad, but I think that might actually be what's really going on because I, I don't really see how you can really have the same attitude in caring for a cell clump as you could for someone like a paraplegic or you know a person who's got all his limbs. Well, so I think it's an unfortunate argument to make that uh, the value of another uh, existence, uh, we'll put it that way, uh, should be uh, incumbent on my ability to sympathize or feel emotional connection to them. So I may absolutely despise my neighbor for any number of different reasons. Uh, I may secretly hope that his house burns down one day because he built it two stories uh, higher than mine and it blocks all the sunlight from getting into my back garden. You know, I, I might uh, not even just have a, a failure to be able to empathize with them. I may actively despise them. But I should be able, from an objective viewpoint, to still recognize their right to exist and their uh, rights as a human being. Um, and, and so I think that that inability to connect emotionally is a very poor starting point, in my opinion.
Um, the, the other point that you made was about a woman being stuck with something that she doesn't want for the rest of her life. And I think, I know Ayn Rand was uh, a pro-abortion, if I understand correctly, but I, I think it was actually against her own philosophy. You know, uh, I won't quote her directly because I don't have it in front of me, uh, and it's often misquoted, but she said something to the effect of, uh, you can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the uh, consequences of ignoring reality. And I, I think that that applies very well to the abortion debate and the pro-choice position. It, uh, you're ignoring reality whenever you're engaging in sexual conduct without uh, appreciating that sexual conduct on a biological level is designed to reproduce. And you can ignore that and you can do it just for the pleasure response. But when you do so and then you have a child, you, you have completed the biological act and have in fact reproduced, it's then not appropriate to then try and continue to ignore the consequences that reality has brought on you. Now it's not um, selfish in uh, her sense to say that you're doing what's in your own best interest. You're actually violating the rights of another uh, being that you brought into existence uh, and you can't wave that away by simply saying, I don't want to accept uh, that it is an individual being. Okay. In a way, you, it's, I think it's, it's clear it's not an individual being in the way that you and I are. It's, you know, this, at least when it's an embryo or a blastocyst, it's this tiny little thing attached to the wall of, of a woman. So is it right to call that an individual? I mean, it, when it's kind of parasitically uh, embedded in, in a woman like that, I don't think that's, that's clear. Um, going back to the, um, the point about emotions being the, so I don't think emotions are the basis of my opposition or Rand's opposition. The, 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 I was just kind of fleshing out the view. This is, I, I wanted to indicate that I don't think it's, it's, it seems strange to me to have the same emotional response. I, I don't remember why that came up in the conversation to begin with. Um, but in any case, I think it's the nature of the thing. It's not, it's not that I have a certain emotion in, towards uh, embryos, which is different than my emotion towards developed human beings. And, and that's why I think it's okay to um, kill the one, but not the other. It's that they have different natures and it's because they have different natures that as a result of that, I have my different emotional responses to them but it's, it's because they're, they're different by nature that I think uh, one doesn't have rights and the other does, and that I th have a certain emotional response towards one that I don't have towards the other. But I, I guess the, the argument is more that I don't think there's good reason to think that a tiny cell clump has rights. So maybe, maybe it would be useful to talk about uh, why some why anything has rights and maybe um, not take it for granted uh, that the answer to that is clear. So why should anything at all have rights? Uh, where do rights come from? 
uh, maybe if, if we have a clear idea of that, then that will help, uh, help us make some headway in, in discussing whether embryos, things like embryos have any rights or that turtles have any rights. Okay. So I, I have some thoughts on where rights come from and what their purpose is, but um, I, I'm interested to hear any thoughts you might want to share on that. Well, so I think there's two valid bases uh, and one uh, you know, basis that I, I dislike whenever you, you generally get into these conversations about uh, the, the nature and uh, source of rights. And so I think if you're religious, you would say that uh, your rights come from your creator and are endowed as a uh, part of your being. If you're non-religious, you would skip the part about the creator and say that they are just an intrinsic uh, part of uh, your existence as a rational thinking being and that um, it is illogical to claim that you uh, as an individual have the ability to do something and that another like individual should not be able to do the same things. Um, you cannot have a civilization if you are not willing to respect uh, other individuals. Uh, at that point, you just devolve into uh, a constant battle for survival based on who's strongest and most fit to dominate over everyone else. Um, and then the, the third argument, uh, which, I, again, I, I don't think is uh, proper is to say that rights come from you know, your government, uh, which is what a lot of left-leaning individuals believe anymore. Uh, the, the failure of that position is that if your rights only come from government, um, your rights don't honestly exist as an independent function. What you're really saying is that you have certain privileges that uh, the government has been so nice as to allow you to uh, continue to exercise, but they can be removed at any given time, which then invalidates really the meaning of rights. Uh, you know, we, we hold rights against other people. They allow us to act in certain ways without interference. Um, and we, we say that we've been violated when others prevent us from acting in those ways that uh, are legitimate. Um, so Personally, trying to keep this away from religious uh, uh, notions, I would say that they are inherent in your uh, very existence as a rational thinking individual. Okay. So a, a couple things I want to tie together here. Um, so it sounds like just now you've said there's a rational or a secular arguments, uh, a non-religious argument for rights. And earlier, you were saying that you think there are non-religious reasons to, to oppose abortion, that even an atheist yes. should, should accept. So I think that's interesting that you, you think there are non-religious or secular reasons for these things, because it seems like that might then imply that you don't need religion for morality. And that's, that's a view that many people would reject. They would say, you know, what, where's morality without God, without religion? There's no way. It's just, um, so if there, if you have these arguments independent of religion 
for opposing abortion and for thinking that human beings have rights, does that mean that rights and good goodness are exist they exist independently of God and religion? You don't need you don't need God for morality. <laughs> um it's a very deep question that I wasn't prepared to answer at the moment. <laughs> you don't have to answer it, but I just thought that was worth at least uh, raising that issue. No, it, it's an interesting question. Um, I think off the top of my head, and I, I, I reserve the ability to clarify later, but um, <laughs> I, I think to some extent you can say that you uh, have morality and um, right and wrong exist outside of and independent of God to the extent that you can say that anything exists independent of God. Um, you know, it, my personal belief is that God as the creator of all things is in all things. And so it's kind of impossible to ever have any discussion of anything without reference to God, uh, except in ignoring reference to God. So um, if you uh, believe that God created the universe through mathematical and logical uh, means and uh, that can be understood by the human mind and gave us a rational and thinking mind to get to know God better by exploring the universe that he created for us, then really uh, the exploration of physics and math and any other science, uh, any other philosophy is inherently an exploration of God uh, and growing closer to God. But, I mean, it's like I can learn more about economics without reading Adam Smith, but I, I'd probably understand and appreciate it a lot better if I understood the history and the, uh, the, uh, the, the other competing philosophies of the day and why, you know, Adam Smith's uh, contributions to economics were so powerful at the time. Does that make sense at all, or am I just kind of rambling? I think I at least have a uh, some sense of, of what you're saying. Uh, but I, let me uh, see if I can press forward on this a little more. So maybe it's easier to um well let, let me start over um so would it be correct to say that you don't need god for morality now you might say it's easier just as has in, having access to adam smith makes it easier to understand the laws of economics but you could discover it on your own if you're like a genius or maybe if you had a thousand years to to study it but but it's not it's not strictly necessary so would you say it's you don't really need religion or god for there to be right and wrong right is okay so <clears throat> i would say that uh some of the most moral and decent people i've ever met were devout atheists and so yes you can act morally and you can act uh, decently and be uh, ethically correct in your actions, well, not even just not knowing God, but actively disavowing God, 
Uh, and, and so that's why I believe anytime you're having these kind of conversations uh, with somebody that does not believe in God, you should try and uh, understand the uh, argument from a non-religious perspective. Because I think it's unfortunately a crutch that a lot of people rely on. And it is very similar. I, I like the analogy you use there. And so if you think about um, any kind of field of science or mathematics, it's very easy to rely on other people's work and to say, well, this expert over here said that, so it must be true, uh, without having really any understanding of it yourself. And I'm sure you probably had conversations with people like that before. And where that becomes very frustrating is if that person misunderstood what the expert was telling them, then they don't have any rational basis for their own belief structure because they skipped all of the essential elements of logical thought. All they did was accept what was given to them. Um, and so where it's very convenient to be able to use that as a jumping point to not invent Arabic numerals from scratch, but to uh, rest on what was at the time a, a revolutionary concept, you know, moving from Roman numerals to Arabic numerals where we actually had the invention of zero, like that by itself uh, completely changed the face of existence for human beings. Um, and I think understanding God and religion can do that as well, but uh, relying on that and not understanding the significance of what's being taught to you through those mediums, uh, it can actually hinder people significantly as well. Okay. So it sounds like you, the way you think of God and religion is they're, they're a useful tool. Like the, well, I, maybe it's easier to think in terms of something like the Bible. Like if that's analogous to the wealth of nations that Adam Smith wrote, there's this book and we could discover everything in it um, independently on our own, but it's, it's easier if we have the book that, that helps us. And I guess you could have a, a, a first-handed understanding of what's in the book or, or not. You could, I, I don't know if that's, um, what the point you were trying to make about like relying on experts in a, in a way where you, you don't really understand um, you just kind of regurgitate the things they say without understanding. Uh, is there, do you also think that something like that could be going on with the Bible? Say, you know, people, they regurgitate it without really understanding it. Um, so you could have a more or less good grasp of it. Um, but the, 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 the content itself is solid. Um, I guess you would, you would say, um, but some people might not have a very clear grasp of it. But so that, that's one thing, like is, I wanna understand how you're understanding something like the Bible. Is it just like a book which makes it easier to understand reality? Um, and it's just like, like a science textbook um, you, where it makes it easier to understand the world. And yeah, people can have, they can understand the science textbook more and less well. 
and people can understand the Bible more and less well. Um, but you could d discover it all on your own in theory. I mean, is it, am I getting right your view at all, or is this totally? Uh, am I missing it? No, I, I think you're you're hitting it very closely. Um, and uh, I would add that you know, it's going back to that idea of uh, people relying too heavily on their religion uh, without really critically thinking about their own perspectives and why they believe what is taught to them in their religion. The Bible itself, I, I believe, is a valid book um, and, and that it was divinely inspired. But when you realize that at the point of it being divinely inspired several thousand years ago, this uh, was either handed down through oral tradition or written in a language that would be completely and totally alien to anyone alive today, and then translated over and over and over again throughout centuries. Um, and then even to the point of which books we uh, adopted into the Bible at different points, which books uh, were ignored, and the variances between uh, the books that are recognized by the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians, and even inside the Christians, the Catholics uh, believe that some books should be included in the Bible, while the Protestants don't include certain books that the Catholics uh, want to use. And then, uh, you, you get into uh, the Mormons, and they add a whole other text. And it, you uh, got a question, well, which set of all of this is accurate? And some of that has to come on faith. And I mean, now you're talking about theology and you know, why do you have faith in one and not another? But without having to get into all of that, uh, just recognizing those differences, you should be able to understand that not everybody is correct. Um, somebody may have the right one. Somebody may be 100% accurate. It's also possible that over the centuries, no one is entirely accurate anymore. And I mean, the, the Bible actually even says that, that at a certain point, uh, none of the churches will be accurate except for a small handful, uh, and that uh, you must write all of this on your heart and uh, ingrain it in yourself. Um, and I, I think the, the best way to rationalize that is to uh, be able to view this not just through blind faith, you take some things that have to be taken on faith, but when there's some principle of morals or ethics or law, some commandment on how to live your life, if it doesn't make any sense the way that it's written uh, or the way that it's being preached, to just go out and do it anyway is how you get Jonestown. Uh, what do you mean by Jonestown? Uh, that's where uh, you had a, the, the mass suicide. Oh, right. The Kool-Aid, drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but uh, that, that's the story. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So there's a lot going on here and we've <laughs> kind of gotten away from abortion, which, which I'm okay with. I don't, I don't know what you, how you feel about that. Um, do you want to go back to the abortion issue or are you okay talking about these other kinds of issues? Well, if I could circle back to abortion, I think there was one other point uh, that might help. Um, and so uh, 
I, I've thought about this a lot now. Whenever we're talking about the the independent nature of a human being uh, as a source of rights, uh, a lot of times people try and uh, discount the fetus uh, because it cannot exist outside of the mother, and the mother is in control of the body, and it's her body, and so there's some kind of ownership right, and uh, that that should be used as a basis of excluding any rights uh, or independent significance to the entity or, or uh, growing massive cells inside of the female body. Um, and the one thought that I have on that, that I, I haven't had a chance to uh, get into the conversation yet, was uh, the idea of like a Siamese twin, uh, which I, I don't think is the proper politically correct term for it anymore, but uh, conjoined twins. Uh, I don't mean anything offensive by that, but um, the point though is uh, whether it's common or not, it's conceivable that in that kind of situation that uh, where you have two people that are sharing the same body, that one of those people may have uh, much greater control over the body or even complete control over the body where the other one is uh, just able to make commentary or, or to, uh, you know, exert its existence but not be able to actually do anything about it and if we're looking at that kind of argument of well it's my body and i have a right to do what it, uh, i can I, I don't think that it would be ethically responsible to say that uh the uh one that's in primary control of that body would be able to exterminate the other's existence to be able to live a more normal and happy life um, because there isn't a direct singular ownership of that body during that point in time. And I think you do have to respect the rights of the two individual beings. And the fact that one is more developed than another, it isn't the only thing that you can look at as far as uh, weighing those rights and privileges against each other. Um, and so that analogy isn't perfect because, I mean, there are certain circumstances where you have a, a conjoined twin that is just a lump of cells that will never actually develop. Uh, and it's a really kind of like a tumor that is removed. It had a different set of DNA, but it, it'll never develop into a human being. And I, I would think that can be distinguished, though, uh, in where that may be morally acceptable and ethically acceptable. Um, and an abortion, I would say, is not because where that it does not have the potentiality to uh, become a separate individual anymore uh, in any way that it can exert its own existence, that fetus does. Um, as long as you properly uh, allow its development and do not stop it from uh, continuing to grow, in all cases, that fetus has the potential to become a human life. That just made me think of a, another sort of thought experiment I, I've used in these conversations sometimes, which is like, suppose that we could, um, I don't know, we scientists developed this new kind of chemical which they could just like sprinkle, sprinkle on the grounds and then it would grow into a child. Okay. Uh, is it now, is there something wrong now if we stop that potentiality 
Like, I, I don't see that the mere potentiality of something's becoming a child should really have significance as to whether we should let it. Just as, you know, it might seem more clear, at least, that in the case where scientists develop this new chemical, which if you just sprinkle it on the grounds, and it could, you know, grow up, children growing out of the uh, earth instead of in the woman's womb, well, are these potential things now, do they have a right to, to life? I don't know that I like that thought experiment because it's so devoid from reality that um, it, it's difficult to say exactly what my position would be on that or how that uh, directly affects things. Um, I, I think more directly, I, I would argue that such experiments are improper just in that uh, there's certain things that human beings should never do as far as science uh, it, and you know it's difficult to think of a proper term that's not religious in that case but it, what you would typically say is that, uh, that they're playing God you know um, and whenever you get to the point of uh, if you recast that in a little bit more um, realistic light you'd say uh like test tube babies or uh you know brave new world kind of thing right where they're, they're uh putting the fetus through incubation on a conveyor belt and injecting certain drugs at different points to encourage development in certain ways i think that is incredibly dangerous uh for a number of other reasons uh, in that I don't like the government having that much control over the production of human life um, in the very unnatural way that those uh, children would be developed, uh, completely devoid of families. Uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of ethical and moral considerations that would uh, just say that you should not ever create life in that way and that the, any argument of the potentiality of that life, uh, of the uh, value of that potentiality should be cut short, uh, not in saying that potentiality doesn't have value, but in that um, scientists should never create that potentiality to begin with. Okay, I, I'm just thinking now, just thinking a little more on this, this thought experiment, like, what if we got to a point where we didn't need pregnancy at all. Women, women didn't need to be pregnant at all. You could just grow children out of the ground, like I was saying. Yeah, it's far from reality, but today, but so is the internet, you know, or <laughs> compared to, you know, 2000 years ago, who, who would have thought I would be able to talk to you, you know, thousands of miles away. Um, <laughs> that, that would seem crazy, but hey, um, science can do amazing things. So what if we get to a point one day where you can just, you know, sprinkle some seeds or some, some kind of chemical on the ground and then the children will develop out of that. So I, I don't really see now I would say it's because of the nature of the thing, you know, it's a little chemicals, who cares? <laughs> why, why should, um, and I have my emotions because of the nature of the thing. It's not that I'm using my emotions to decide this, but, um, why should we think that things that are just, you know, chemicals, maybe in, even invisible, they're so small, should have rights um, 
maybe they have the potentiality just as a zygote has the potentiality, but because of, so this, this kind of comes back to the earlier point about uh, where do rights come from? And you said there's a secular and a non-secular argument and that got a, then I raised the question about, okay, so you don't need, if you can have a secular argument for rights, that means you don't need morality or you don't need religion for rights and goodness. And then we get, had the whole discussion, but maybe just to um, bring it back to the rights issue in particular uh, of where, where do rights come from? So I think it, it's, they come from the nature of the, the being because you and I are the kinds of beings we are. We should have rights and there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so we have rational capacities and we, I think we survive by means of our, our reason. We're the rational animal, as Aristotle said, paraphrasing him. And our, but our reasoning capability can be thwarted when we use force against each other. Uh, so if we're gonna flourish together in a society and not have to do everything on our own, become self-sustaining farmers, we have to come up with principles that govern our interactions. And I think the basic principle that uh, should govern the way people relate to each other in society is that they don't initiate force against each other because uh, without that principle, um, people can't use their minds to produce and create things. And uh, the mind is the source of value. So we need some way to, to respect that. And, make it in our interest to live together with each other in society. So um, I think the, the principle of the non-initiation of force, which is Ayn Rand's principle, uh, which I, I guess there was maybe some predecessors to that in John Locke, at least he had some grasp of that, I think, and the founding fathers did. Um, I think that's, that's a good principle um, to govern <laughs> the way human beings like you and I interact with each other. But I don't think that that issue is really on the table when we're talking about a, a cell clump. I mean, it's not like if, if, you, if I use force against you and you use force against me whenever we want something from each other, if we resort to coercion instead of persuasion in rational discourse, that's going to be a terrible society. It's going to be a war of all against all. And, you know, it's just going to be might makes rights. And uh, it's not going to be good for the individuals in that society. Um, so I think it's clear that there's a why we would want to have this principle of no initiating force against beings like you and I. But if, but if, if it's not even, if it's just a cell clump where it's not like, oh, I have to interact with the cell clump in a certain way because if I don't, something bad is going to happen as if, you know, if I initiate force against you, then you're going to want to, you know, fight back against me, at least most likely it's going to be this war again of all against all, but I'm not going to face any of those negative consequences. If I, um, you know, snuff out the life of an embryo, it's not like society is going to fall apart and we're not going to make any progress. We're not going to be able to use our rational mind anymore to produce values and uh, create wealth. You know, the sky is not going to fall. Um, so I think the whole point of rights is for beings like you and I to be able to deal with each other in a way that's conducive to our own interest. It's not, it's, the point is not, it would, that, that point, and that whole point would be frustrated, I think, 
if we allowed things like embryos to have rights. Because now, if I'm as a human being, a grown human being, I can't flourish and live a successful, happy, prospering life because I'm now, my life is being sacrificed um, to this little cell clump. Why should I care about the cell clump? <laughs> um, or why should it have any rights? Um, what, I think that defeats the purpose of rights, which is to allow beings like you and I to flourish. Okay, I've been sure. going on for a long time, so let me <laughs> give it to you. Okay, so I, I understand where you're coming from with that. And it, um, I, I think it, it uh, promotes a couple of different logical processes. And you're conflating the benefit of a right with what a right is in its intrinsic nature. Um, if a right was only uh, a um, code of ethics that we agreed to live by so that society didn't fall apart, um, our rights may be very, very different. I mean, uh, under that kind of contention, uh, you, you could justify slavery and that uh, what's the purpose of uh, allowing these uh, certain groups to become part of society as a whole, if it's going to make my life less uh, palatable, it's going to uh, cause more work for me, or, you know, why should women be allowed to vote if uh, they're going to vote for things that I don't agree with, that are going to lower uh, the uh, societal uh, advantages of men. Uh, so, I mean, it, those kind of arguments lend to very bad things, where I think that argument that society works best when rights are represented is a good way of getting people on board with the idea of rights. It, it doesn't uh, adequately define what rights are. And so I, I think um, in my mind to try and explain what rights are, the best uh, way to do that is to go back to the thought experiment of uh, the man isolated in nature, uh, which a lot of philosophers have used. But if I'm alone on, uh, let, let's say I, I get on a rocket ship, I go out to uh, some magical new planet where I am the only living human being on the entire planet. I should reasonably and logically be able to do whatever I want on that planet whatsoever because there's no one else there and nothing I can do could possibly affect anybody. So uh, any limitation on my rights or my ability uh, to do anything would be completely unjustified. Why wouldn't I be allowed to do anything I want? But if you imagine a second human being coming to the same planet, then the justification for right, or uh, limitation to the right to act of either one of us would be that non-aggression principle. Not because uh, it makes my life better. In fact, just the two of us being on the planet my life would probably be best if I was the stronger of the two individuals to go over and beat him to death and have the whole planet to myself again. Uh, and once he's gone, there'd be no one there to say anything different and no consequences uh, for my choice to kill him. But uh, the justification for a limitation on my right to action would be that my rights end where his rights begin, that he, uh, as that second person on the planet should have the right to act just as much as I do because we're similarly situated in uh, rational thinking individuals and we should only limit ourselves in the extent that we overlap and uh, conflict with each other. Um, that 
negative implication of rights, that, that statement of you cannot do this because it violates me, it is, I think, the, the proper way of uh, defining those, uh, what a right is. It, is it's a, it's a, a positive enforcement of my ability to act or a limitation on somebody else's ability to act to prevent my fundamental being. And uh, so you go back to the most fundamental rights there are of life, liberty, and property. And of those, the most fundamental is life. And I think that is the ultimate justification of uh, the fetus uh, being allowed to continue to exist is that it has a right to live. And whether or not somebody suffers consequences from violating that right or not, uh, it, it is the most fundamental of everything that is, is the right to exist. And we're cutting that short. Okay. There's a lot there. So one point you, you made was about the, the justification of rights. Um, it, it's, it's not good to make it dependent on what's good for society because then there could be things like maybe slavery would be good. Maybe it would be good to not give women the vote. So, um, as I see it, the justification of rights is what's good for the individual. And I don't know if I made that as clear as I could have or should have, but I think it's, it, that is the justification of rights, that it's good for individual human beings, meaning beings like you and I, not meaning cell clumps. So if something is good for beings like you and I and women, grown women, then, uh, and that's, that's the kind of framework I think we should have in thinking about rights. So what, how, it, how is it that beings like that can interact with each other in a way that is good for each of them? And I think that the non-initiation of force principle is, is, is good there. But it's, I, I don't think um, one needs to be concerned with how do beings like me and you know, the, the, the cell clump interact with each other? I don't think that's what gives rise to the issue of, of rights or, or why we should be concerned about rights. So I, I'm concerned with rights because I am concerned about beings like you and I are right now and like grown women are. I'm not concerned with rights because I'm concerned with cell clumps. So. So if rights only exist for individuals like ourselves, then why would somebody that, let's say, has Down syndrome and will never have the mental uh, uh, ability of anything past a five or six-year-old, why should they have rights uh, on the same level as us? They're nothing like us. And they never will be. I, I think maybe they, they don't have the same rights, exactly. Like maybe you couldn't you know, trust a person with a person with Down syndrome shouldn't be able to be president of the United States, shouldn't have the right to run for office. I think that's at least on first thought a reasonable thing because they, they are mentally handicapped and they need someone else to care for them uh, longer than uh, is necessary in the normal case. So I don't think they properly, I don't think they have the same sets of rights or responsibilities. Um, well, why should they have any rights? 
Uh, well, I think they're, I, I haven't thought about Down syndrome people, but I, I again think this, this might be a, a kind of a red herring where we're, we're getting um, distracted by the, what to do in these borderline cases of the Siamese twin and the, the Down syndrome person and, you know, the person who hasn't had an umbilical cord cut versus five minutes before. What I think is more clear is why should we, maybe we should care. I, I can see being puzzled as to exactly how should we treat Down syndrome or just children. You know, they don't have the same set of rights exactly. I mean, they don't have a right to drive a car or to vote. Um, so exactly how should we think about children? I mean, that's, that's a discussion that we could have, but I, I don't think it's uh, as, it's kind of, um, it's, it's less important, I think, than recognizing that there's no, there's no clear reason to, be care, to care about a cell clump, an invisible cell clump, a microscopic one. So if we're not, I guess that's what I would want to talk about. So if you think we should care about the invisible cell clump, I, I guess I want to hear more about why. And just saying that it has the potential to become the sort of thing that I do care about, or at least sort of care about. Um, like, it, you know, I care about things at different degrees, um, but well, and so I might I, even I, care about the cell clump if I want to have a child, <laughs> but if, if I don't want to have, so like, why, why should I care about that thing? Um, Well, so uh, the reason why I think that uh, I, I think it's important here to uh, try and go back to that line drawing it to some extent. Uh, it, you, you shied away from it once, uh, and you, you shied away from it whenever I use any kind of correlation uh, or uh, you know analogy. But I, I think it is very important because it's easy to uh, point at something and say, "Well, you know, this should have absolutely no rights because it's completely alien to us." And then by analogy, that uh, that just carries through uh, entirely. But if we say that there should be any restriction on abortion at all, uh, based on the idea of this uh, obvious uh, inconsistency with the, the line drawing of um, the actual moment of birth, where uh, a child that has exited the mother's womb is viable, uh, is a human life, and has uh, full rights of existence, but uh, five minutes before then, it should still have rights to existence at 40 weeks of pregnancy. Well, if, if we say that's not a reasonable line, uh, and uh, that, that there should be something back further, then it, it begs the question uh, it, uh, to say, well, let's just go all the way back to the, the cell clump and say that, you know, that's silly, uh, because you got to say, well, when does it change? When, when is it, even a, in a general sense, like what is uh, like, uh, so in law, let, let me um, kind of rambling, let me try and uh, tighten it in a little bit. In law, we have the reasonable person standard that's used a lot. And it, that's kind of a moving target because uh, the, it's a thought experiment to say, well, uh, the hypothetical reasonable person would do this or wouldn't do that. And if the reasonable person would do it, it's okay. If the reasonable person wouldn't do that, then it's not okay. And it's uh, a lot of law students have problems with that because uh, the question is, well, what would a reasonable person do? But it at least gives you some kind of framework to work within. 
you know, uh, it, everyone agrees if a reasonable person would do it, it's okay. Uh, they might disagree about exactly what a reasonable person is or what the reasonable person might do on any given situation, but it gives you a frame of reference to work within. If we don't have any kind of frame of reference to work within with the abortion uh, conversation, then it, it's really difficult to even have the conversation. It's going back to that reason why I, I said I think a lot of people get really angry and contentious uh, whenever we start to have these conversations because you're talking past each other and uh, just really unwilling to try and connect the dots to see where you agree and where you really disagree. And so that line drawing, if it's it's if the line of birth, it doesn't make sense, and I, I say that it really doesn't because if the child is able to be born alive at 40 weeks, allowing it to be uh, murdered, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, I, I refrain from that word, to be terminated, to be killed inside of the womb at 40 weeks doesn't make any sense. And if uh, you say, well, the ability of it to be born alive at that moment prevents uh, that uh, killing from being justified, that can be moved all the way back to 21 weeks. I mean, there's at least uh, a couple dozen cases where children as young as 20 weeks uh, of, or I'm sorry, 21 weeks of gestation have been able to survive outside of the womb. And yes, whenever the child is first conceived as a fetus, it's a clump of cells and it's completely alien. Uh, I mean, it, it's just like, a little gooey mess that uh, no one would think of as anything. But in reality, no one knows that they're pregnant at that time either. You know, most women don't realize that they're pregnant until several weeks later, uh, uh, maybe as early as a month, but uh, probably closer to the second month when they realize that they're way too late on their pregnant or on their period. And then they go out and get a test and they say, oh crap, I'm pregnant. Well, by two months, that child no longer is just a clump of cells uh, that, like you're describing. And, you know, by that point that most women realize that they actually are pregnant, it has significant development where it looks a lot like a human being. And uh, a very short period of time after that, it's got an independent heartbeat. It has been proven to be able to feel pain. Uh, it hits a lot of those metrics that you're talking about to uh, classify it as a human being as opposed to uh, just a clump of cells. Yeah, so it's getting more human-like. <laughs> so I, I think this is uh, it's why I want to focus on the stage when it's not human-like, when it's clearly not human-like, where we don't have any of these line drawing issues, when it's just a tiny clump of cells. Because if we're, if we, if we can't agree on that, then I don't think we're gonna make any progress in agreeing about where it is more human-like and you can make out different limbs and heart and so forth. If we've just got a, a cell clump, maybe like two cells, let's say, uh, if we can't agree that that's, that's uh, what, um, not worthy of rights, then we're certainly not going to agree on any any later stage. So where I'm conflicted and where I might agree with you is uh, whenever you have an egg that's been fertilized that has not attached the, uh, to the womb, uh, it, it's um, it has it maybe even started cell division, but it's not attached. Uh, it's um, 
very possible that it, it will be rejected because, uh, you know, if you read the medical literature, uh, the uh, many, many pregnancies, if not the majority of them, actually uh, don't uh, become viable because uh, even after being fertilized, the egg is just sent on its way as part of the normal uh, process of the woman uh, going through her menstruation. Um, and so at that point, I think that there is uh, an argument to be made that uh, using something like a morning after pill or something else that would prevent that potentially fertilized egg from being uh, attached to the womb and having the ability to further divide or uh, to artificially in uh, inseminate that egg and uh, then manipulate its division some other way for embryotic uh, stem cell research, uh, stuff like that. That I believe is a much more difficult area to make a, a definitive statement on. And um, you know, I think there's room for reasonable argument in those areas. But those are not the cases uh, where women are having abortions. Uh, you know, uh, when we're talking about abortion, most people are not referring to uh, taking the morning after pill as contraceptive. And they're, they're not talking about uh, people uh, doing research in laboratories. They're talking about uh, somebody at 12, 15, 25 weeks uh, going in and dismembering the embryo and removing it through some kind of a surgery. Okay, so now I'm wondering if I can use the line drawing against you. <laughs> Um, if you think it's okay to do something like the morning after pill or maybe, you know, use it, whatever, then can I just work my way up going the other direction? If you think that's okay, why not the next second? Why not the next second? Why not the next second as far as you want? Well, and so that's actually why I tend to not think that that's okay. Uh, I'm saying I, I, I have qualms about it there, and I'm not entirely certain uh, that I have the right answer. Uh, what I'm uh, saying, I can more fully appreciate that argument and uh, the fact that, um, it, because if you said that uh, it was unjustified to prevent the egg from attaching to the, uh, to the womb, then, I mean, how do you... Uh, look at all of those cases where the uh, egg doesn't naturally attach to the womb. You know, are you actually even doing anything? Would it have attached normally anyway? There, there's a lot of questions there and it becomes much more nuanced even than uh, the statement I was having before about the mens rea of the individual woman seeking an abortion versus the mens rea of a uh, abortion provider. Uh, and, and so, if you're talking that really specifically, uh, specifically granularly on the two, three cell uh, level uh, when divisions just started, and uh, I mean, that you could get into some really nuanced medical discussions, but I tend to believe that any kind of limitation on the development is still probably immoral because I do caution uh, if you're not certain that the better answer is to preserve life. Uh, well, I think what, what is meant by preserve life? I mean, I don't think all life deserves to be preserved. I don't think the bacteria in my mouth deserve to be preserved. <laughs> I, I kill them every morning with mouthwash. 
Um, uh, I think certain kinds under no circumstances will ever become a, a rational being. I don't think it matters, even if it could. Even if, you know, science developed to the point where, you know, some, you know, bacterial cells in my mouth could be harvested and turned into human beings, I'd say they still have no rights. Um, so the, the um, I, I don't think the potentiality matters. Um, but if you, I think actual human beings matter, not potential human beings. So if going back to my futuristic sci-fi example of seeds or chemicals that scientists could develop and sprinkle on the dirt, so you don't need women to get pregnant anymore, but you can just grow child like you grow um, pumpkins, you know, um, they're merely potential. Those, also, I kind of scoffed at that uh, before, but I, I guess uh, let me uh, hit that more directly. Uh, right. So I think that if you're dealing with that, uh, if you have a uh, situation where those would be able to just be sprinkled on the ground and become humans, where I still stand by the idea that I don't think uh, the scientists should be allowed to create such a thing to begin with because of the, the overwhelming... <laughs> Uh, ethical uh, and moral concerns for such technology existing. That if such technology existed, just like in the case of rape, it wouldn't be uh, the fault of the child uh, that such technology was created. And so it would be improper to uh, prevent those children from becoming human beings um, any more than it would be proper to prevent any other child from becoming a fully fledged into human, independent human being. Sorry, I'm just trying to get the sun out of the, the background of my <laughs> screen here. No, I understand. I've seen you try and uh, deal with that a couple of times there. <laughs> and I don't want my computer. Do I look like I'm a, do I look tilted or do I look okay like this? Like, no, you, you look good. I just don't want to be tilted. Um, Okay, sorry. Uh, so you were saying you, you think that even in this uh, futuristic kind of case, you, you think that uh, you, you shouldn't be, uh, you should let those things go on and live or what? Sorry. Yes, I, I actually, I think it, uh, it's even easier. Because uh, at first, I didn't know what to say because I was kind of just caught off guard by the uh, concept. But the, the more I think about it, the, the less uh, concern I even have for uh, the issue, because uh, really, you have no balancing right there at all. The argument uh, for abortion generally is as strong as it is and resonates with as many people as it does, because uh, the woman is forced to gestate for nine months uh, when she otherwise wouldn't choose to do that. But in this case, you're talking about uh, the seeds that would be able to be planted in the ground to become uh, full-fledged human beings. And all you would need is to provide some land someplace to be able to do that. Uh, there would be no one's rights uh, that were disadvantaged by allowing these things to be created. Uh, it, it would really be difficult to make any argument for why these things shouldn't be allowed to develop naturally. Okay, so you're now saying that there's 
are you basically then saying that there's like a duty to create new human beings? So like if, if scientists develop this technology, these seeds, they could just sprinkle on the grounds and children would grow. Um, they now have a duty to, to make these children come into being. They shouldn't just like never plant the seeds. Yes. So, I mean, going back to Aristotle, if the, the purpose of the thing is the uh, ends of the thing, then the, the purpose of those seeds would be to uh, become human beings. And so um, anybody that was trying to do anything else with them would be violating their natural purpose uh, in nature. Um, it, the fact that there is no countervailing rights uh, or obligations, the only real reason to not do it at that point would be uh, malice against those seedlings. Well, so suppose that these seeds were developed because the, uh, maybe someone, some women, they, they don't want to have the experience of being pregnant. It's just a hassle. They don't want the morning sickness and all the other um, whatever other negatives come along with being pregnant, but they do want a child. They want to raise a child. Um, so they just, they don't want that, the negatives that come along with being pregnant. So, um, so there's an incentive for scientists to develop this, this other way of developing um, babies. So there's a market for it. There's, there's certain women at least who they want to have children to raise, but they don't want to gestate them. Okay. Okay. So, um, you've got these, you know, seeds at the, at the pharmacy, let's say, and, or so you can buy them from CVS or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. they're just sitting there on the shelf. And, uh, I don't know, maybe they have an expiration date or something. Um, I don't know if they need, if they need one, but anyways, you've just got these extra seeds sitting there as long as they need to until someone buys them. Um, and if it turns out no one wants them, uh, maybe because I don't know, some new generation of seed is developed, which grows a little quicker or something. So we can get rid of the old seeds. No one's going to buy them. So, but they could, they could still be used to grow children. So, um, is it wrong to just, you know, grind up the old seeds? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, so that's, that's like, you're, who, you're, when you talk about the purpose of these things, like who is the, there is no intrinsic, and we, we develop also, them, human beings develop these precisely for beings like themselves, like grown women who might want children. So I don't think they have an intrinsic purpose that's being frustrated and even if they did, I mean, animals have their own purposes, but we can kill them uh, for food or whatever. So, so you're hiding uh, a lot of nefariousness, I think, uh, in behind uh, presuppositions that you make uh, to uh, try and make these things sound better than what they really are. The logic that you're using uh, on these seeds in a more realistic scenario would be the exact logic of an orphanage saying that uh, children are most likely to be adopted before the age of three, 
And so at the age of three, we're going to euthanize the children uh, because uh, they're no longer really viable. Uh, their uh, shelf life has expired uh, and they're just not likely to be uh, adopted. We're going to be stuck with huge costs of raising these children. And on top of that, uh, studies show that uh, children that have uh, lived their entire lives in orphanages are uh, 10 times more likely to commit crimes, uh, more likely to live in poverty, you know, uh, on and on. And so it's just better for everybody to dispose of these uh, children after the age of three, at which point they're not capable of independent life anyway. Uh, nobody wants them. And so why would you want to keep them? I guess I've not seen the 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 parallel there. So, well, because your argument is that uh, the thing does not have rights until it is sufficiently like us, but a three-year-old is not capable of much of anything on its own. It's I, not I capable of feeding itself. It's not capable of finding food. It's not capable of uh, developing its own shelter. It's not capable of following the rules of civilization. Like almost any metric that we use to describe a human being, including rational thought, doesn't apply to a three-year-old. And so if we had that kind of mentality, why shouldn't we be able to exterminate all the three-year-olds in the orphanage after we've determined that nobody wants to adopt somebody over the age of three? I think a three-year-old is significantly or su sufficiently like us, like adult human beings. I don't think that's true of a seed. So, I mean, maybe this, this is a way to, to, to another way to put the point. If you're teaching a child, what is a human being? I mean, I kind of made this point earlier. You could actually teach a child what, what that is by pointing to a three-year-old. It's a small human being. I'm another, I'm a big human being. Um, you can't point to a seed and say that's a human being. He'll have no idea what you're talking about. Now, so I, I think there's, there's, uh, there is, one is sufficiently like the things that paradigmatically have rights. Oh, I see my battery is about to die. So we should wrap this up soon. Whereas the okay. other, I think, is very dissimilar. Um, so anyways, uh, we should wrap this up because I only have a couple percent left. So do you have any last words you want to say? Uh, no, I, I think uh, I'll just say that it was a very pleasant conversation. I, I appreciate your time. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that we were able to keep this civil and productive. And uh, we, we might not have walked away agreeing with each other on much, but it was still enjoyable and I, I think uh, productive in its own right and fleshing out the points that we had. Yeah, I always learn from having these conversations, um, you know, find better ways to think of it or articulate my view. And it's good to hear what your perspective is to hear how other people are thinking about it. So yeah, I definitely enjoy this conversation. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.